Welcome to First Church Live. If it's your first time joining us, my name's Chad, and I just want to welcome in all of our families who are joining us all throughout the 918 and beyond. So glad you're worshiping with us today, and today is Mother's Day, so I just want to say happy Mother's Day to all of our moms who are worshiping with us, and I know that Mother's Day looks a little bit different this year, but we still want to let you know that we appreciate you. We want to thank you and let you know we love you. We're praying for you as well, and so some of the men and kids in our church decided to put together a little video to thank our moms today so take a look at this when things are at their worst we can always count on moms to be at their best while the world around us is hunkered down in fear they're the ones on the front lines making the new normal feel a little bit more normal all in the hopes that years from now when kids think back on this time, they won't think about their fear or their uncertainty. They'll tell stories about playing ball in the house and not getting in trouble, about epic birthday parades, social distancing workouts, and uninterrupted family dinners. They'll remember that while everyone was being homeschooled, they didn't just learn reading, writing, and arithmetic. They learned about what really matters in life, God's love, family, laughter, and a good internet connection. And during this time, when we're all told to stay apart, they'll find that somehow we've all grown a little closer, so that one day, when this madness is all finally over, when this new normal goes back to some sense of normalcy, our children will one day tell stories about how in the spring of 2020, the world did not stop. It kept spinning and moving forward until we finally got to see our friends, fueled by one of the most powerful forces created by God, a mother's love. Happy Mother's Day. Happy Mother's Day. Happy Mother's Day. I love you, Mommy. Happy Mother's Day, Mom. I love you. So, moms, we just want to thank you and let you know how much we appreciate you. We're praying for you and we love you guys. Now, I also want to acknowledge that Mother's Day isn't a great day for everybody. In fact, for some people, it's a very difficult day. So if that's you today, we also love you. We're glad you're worshiping with us. We're praying for you as well. But I think we can all acknowledge that moms and dads, parents, and all of us really, we've been through a whole lot of stuff over the past few weeks that we never thought we would have to experience. And so 
I actually came across on Facebook a post the other day of this question, what have you said to your kids during this COVID-19 situation, this quarantine situation that you never thought you would say? My wife, Allison, reposted it, and I saw a ton of different answers, and I thought I'd share some of them with you, especially since Mother's Day. Some of you moms have probably said something similar to this to, of this to your kids. The first response that I thought was great was one parent said, yes, you can wear your pajamas to church, and some of you parents probably thought you would never say that, but right Right now, you're worshiping with your family and your kids are wearing their pajamas. So it's just one of those crazy times they're allowed to do it. I really like this one too. One mom said, if you get hurt, I'm not taking you to the ER right now. And so this is something you probably thought you would never say, but you've been saying it during this whole COVID-19 crisis. I like this one too. This mom said, get on Zoom and find someone else to talk to. As if you've been talking to me way too much, get on Zoom, find some friend, find somebody else to talk to. But you never thought you would say that, but you have. How about this one right here? I will burn that shirt if you don't let me wash it soon. I talked to one mom the other day who said that she realized that her son had been wearing the same shirt for four straight days. And so maybe you've been there, I don't know, but this last one is my favorite. No, you can't Zoom while you're on the toilet. Now, I don't even want to know the backstory to that. I don't know what was going on in that situation, but I agree with that mom who said that to her kid. You know, we've all been through a whole lot the past few weeks that we never thought we would have to experience. We've said some things that we never thought we would say, done some things that we never thought we would have to do, and that's okay. We're all in this thing together, and that's why we started this series a few weeks ago called Curveball, because curveballs are not just something that happened in baseball, they happen in life as well. And we all understand that in life, in life we are confronted all the time with uninvited twists and turns that often catch us off guard. Life is full of uninvited twists and turns that often catch us off guard. And in this series, we're looking at different people in the Bible who were thrown some curveball at some point in life and we're seeing how they responded to it and how God continued to work in their lives. And so today, as we continue in the series, we're going to look at a godly woman who faced a few curveballs in her life and see how she responded. And here's the thing. Her story, it's a pretty exciting one. It's a fun story to look at from the Old Testament. And we will learn from this story that when you play the role that God wants you to play in His story, in His plan... He can use your life in incredible ways. We're going to look at the life of a woman named Esther. And I believe that all of us will learn from this story that God has, God has an incredible role for you in his story. No matter if you feel inadequate, no matter if you feel insecure, God can use your life in his story. In fact, he has an incredible role for you to play in his story. So if you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn with me to the book of Esther. That's what we're going to be studying today. Esther's story is actually found in a historical book named after her, appropriately named after her, called Esther in our Old Testament. And if your family has been like mine over the past few weeks, you've probably played a lot of games to pass the time. We've played a lot of board games, a lot of card games, and I actually have with me today a deck of cards. And this is a giant jumbo deck of cards, if you can tell. This is for you older folks who maybe have some trouble seeing, like Matt Thomason, our executive minister. No, I'm just kidding. I love Matt. I just like giving him a hard time. He's not that old. But still, this is a giant jumbo deck of cards that I've got with me today. And I want to use this deck of cards to help illustrate the story of Esther. Years ago, I saw somebody use five different playing cards to describe the story of Esther. To, because basically, 
Esther's story is about five key individuals, five key characters. And we're going to look at those five key characters today. And since that helped me years ago using playing cards, I want to use them today as well. And so Esther's story is one that is full of drama. In fact, if there's one word that I could use to describe Esther's story, it would be just that drama. I mean, this is a story of wild parties and a sinister villain and plot twists and beauty pageants and murder and conspiracy and hidden identities. And the list just goes on and on. And it all starts with this guy named Xerxes. Xerxes is the king of Persia. And I'm going to call or I guess identify Xerxes as the king of spades. Now, Persia is the most powerful empire on the face of the planet. The Persians overtook the Babylonians. At one point, the Babylonians, they were the most powerful nation, kingdom on earth, but the Persians defeated them. And now Xerxes, he is the king, the emperor of Persia. So what that means is he's the most powerful man on the face of the planet. And Xerxes, well, he's kind of an egomaniac. He's a little bit crazy. He's kind of cuckoo for Cocoa Puffs, and he does some crazy stuff which we're going to talk about here in just a second but Xerxes has some people living in his kingdom that aren't actually from his kingdom the Jews the Israelites see back when the Babylonians took over the Israelites they took those people into captivity and now that the Persians have taken over the Jews God's people they're not really captives anymore but they really don't have a place in the Persian Empire they're just kind of scattered dispersed throughout the kingdom and they just kind of do whatever jobs they can possibly do and so the Jews are there living Living in Persia, but they really don't have a place. They're just kind of there. And Xerxes, he's okay with that, but a lot of people aren't. In fact, there's a lot of racial prejudice against the, the Jewish people. But Xerxes, he's on a power trip. He's an egomaniac, like I said. And so he decides, since he's the most powerful man on the face of the planet, he wants to show off his power. He wants to show off his wealth. And so he decides to throw a 180-day celebration, basically, of himself. And this is what the Bible says. In Esther 1, verses 3 and 4, it says, In the third year of his reign, of his reign he gave a banquet for all of his nobles and officials. For a full 180 days, he displayed the vast wealth of his kingdom and the splendor and glory of his majesty. Now, I'm sure some of you guys have been to some pretty impressive and big parties in the past, but I doubt if you've been to a celebration, a party that lasted 180 days. And here's the thing. This thing went on for 180 days, and they didn't run out of chips and salsa. It was a party of parties. Hey, Xerxes, he's the most powerful man on the face of the planet, and he knows how to party. But then we get to the end of the 180-day period, and Xerxes is like, well, I don't want the party to end, so he decides to extend the party seven more days and this time he invites in all the citizens of his kingdom to be a part of it see before it was just like the nobles and the officials now he invites all the citizens of the kingdom to come in and the party is taken to a whole new level and the book of Esther gives us this little comment about Xerxes on the seventh day of this extended party so the one on the 187th day of partying it says King Xerxes was in high spirits I think we all get what that's saying there, and that's probably the understatement of the century. King Xerxes, he's hammered. He's hammered. He's had way too much to drink, and here's the thing. When you're hammered, you don't always make the best decisions, and that's exactly what happens in the case of Xerxes. 
So Xerxes is hammered. He's had way too much to drink. And he calls in one of his servants, and he gives his servant this order. Look at what happens. He says, bring before me Queen Vashti, that's his wife, wearing her royal crown in order to display her beauty to the people and nobles, for she was lovely to look at. So basically what Xerxes says is, after he said way too much to drink, he says, hey, I want you to bring in my wife, the queen, Queen Vashti, and we're going to call Queen Vashti, we're going to call her here the Queen of Diamonds. Bring in Vashti because she's beautiful and she's gorgeous, and I want to show her off. Now, in our civilized culture, our enlightened culture, I know it's hard for us to imagine a culture where older rich men would marry trophy wives just to show them off to their buddies, but that's what's going on here. Once a day did exist, once, that type of day did exist once, and so uh, basically King Xerxes wants to show off his wife Vashti, and she's beautiful and says, hey, I want you to come on out and I want you to show off your beauty, but here's the thing. In this passage where it says, wearing her royal crown, the traditional Jewish interpretation of that is wearing only her royal crown. So not only does he want to show her off, parade her around like a piece of meat, he also wants to turn her into a pornographic image before all the nobles, all of his buddies, all the officials, all the citizens of his kingdom. And here's the thing about Queen Vashti. She has a moral compass, pretty strong one. And she says, uh-uh, not going to do it. I don't think so, O king. I am not going to do what you're commanding me to do. Now, here's the thing. You did not say no to the king in this day and age. That was a capital offense. That was an offense worthy of death if you said no to the king. And so Vashti could be killed for this, but... Xerxes, he loves Vashti, so he doesn't know what to do when all of his advisors come around and say, King, you've got to do something about your wife because if she rebels against you and she says no to you, well, then all of our wives are going to rebel against us. Chaos is going to break out and, oh, King Xerxes, you've got to do something about her. So this is what Xerxes does. He ends up banishing her from his presence. In fact, he banishes her from the kingdom. She's never allowed to step back foot in the Persian Empire again. So Queen Vashti... She's gone. She's done. We never hear from her again. But some time passes, and Xerxes realizes that the decisions that you make when you're hammered, when you're drunk, when you've had way too much to drink, those decisions are typically the ones you regret later. And that's what happened for Xerxes. Some time passes, and he begins to miss his wife. If you read on the passage in Esther 2 verse 1, it says, later when the anger of the king of King Xerxes had subsided, he remembered Vashti and what she had done and what he had decreed about her. So Xerxes starts to miss Vashti and realizes, well, maybe I should not have got rid of her. Maybe I should not have asked her to do this. And he begins to realize that a harem and concubines it's no substitute for a wife. Even crazy cuckoo for Cocoa Puff Xerxes realizes that sex is no substitute for real committed love. He misses his wife. And so he gets depressed and down, and his advisors realize that he's depressed and down, and so they come up with this great scheme. 
They say, hey, we need to find the king another wife, so let's throw this nationwide, kingdom-wide beauty pageant, and we'll bring together all the most beautiful women, young women in the kingdom, and we will parade them before King Xerxes, and he'll get to pick his favorite one. He'll get to pick the one that he thinks is the most beautiful, and she can be his wife. Now, as shallow as all that sounds, Xerxes actually likes the idea, and the passage says this in verse 4, this advice appealed to the king, and he followed it. So that's exactly what happens, and we have the first ever edition of the Bachelor. So the Bachelor Persian style takes place. It airs. They round up all the most beautiful women all throughout the Persian Empire. They bring them in. And for those who make the cut, now I'm not sure exactly what the criteria was, what the standards were exactly, but for those who make the cut, who are considered the most beautiful, they have to go through a year-long period of beauty treatment. Now, Ladies, I want you to think about this for a second. Can you imagine going through a year of just going to spas and having pedicures done and manicures and different uh, makeup makeovers and tanning sessions and all that kind of stuff? These women who made the cut to be in the finals of this beauty pageant, for a year, they went through all these beauty treatments. And husbands, you think it takes a while for your wife to get ready. I mean, that's crazy to me. But still, those who made the cut went through this year-long period of beauty treatments. And then after a year, they got to appear before King Xerxes, and he gets to pick his favorite, basically. And so he's going through all these different young ladies who are before him, and he's smitten by one of them. He's smitten by a young girl named Esther. And here's the thing. Esther, she's beautiful. She's really, really pretty. She beats out all the other girls, and the Bible says this about her. It says, Esther was lovely in form and features. I think that's the Bible's very nice and polite way of saying she was smoking. Esther was smoking. Now, I hope you're not offended by that because Xerxes thought so. That's why he picked her, and he picks Esther to be his wife. We'll call Esther the queen of hearts. And so basically, Xerxes hands her the rose and says, you're the one I choose. They get married. They go on their honeymoon. And King Xerxes declares it a national holiday as he and Esther are married. She becomes his queen. Now, here's the thing. There's more to Esther than just her good looks. I mean, can't you tell by her picture? I mean, there's more to Esther than just her good looks. There's something else you need to know about her. She's a Jew. Now, Xerxes doesn't know that. No one else in his court knows that. Not only that, she's an orphan, and she's an orphan who's been raised by her cousin, a guy named Mordecai. We'll bring Mordecai into our story as well, and I'm going to identify Mordecai as the ace. And you'll find out here in a second why he's the ace of the story. Mordecai, well, he's also a faithful Jew, and he raises Esther as his own. He's kind of her adopted father, and raises her. But he tells Esther, he says, don't tell the king that you're a Jew. No one knows that I've been raising you. Keep your identity a secret for now because there's a lot of hostility towards the Jews throughout the Persian Empire, and right now it's probably not the best time for anyone to know that. And so that's what happens. Esther marries the king, and she keeps her identity a secret. And that was probably a good call that Mordecai made because 
There's a guy who's actually second in command to Xerxes. He's kind of the prime minister of the entire land, and he's the villain of the story. I mean, every good drama has to have a bad guy, right? Every good story has to have a villain, and so we meet our villain. His name is Haman, and at this point, you can cue the sinister evil music. <laughs> Haman is our bad, bad guy, and I'm going to identify Haman as the joker in our story. Now, I don't call him the joker because he's funny, not because he's ha-ha funny or anything like that. He's the joker in the sense of like the Batman joker. He's kind of crazy like the Dark Knight movies joker. He's nuts. He's even more of an egomaniac than Xerxes. He's more prideful. He's more all about himself. And here's the thing about Haman. He kills anybody that gets in his way. He kills anybody that tries to stop him. Now, one other thing you need to know about Haman He's a racist. He absolutely hates the Jews. Now, Xerxes wasn't exactly sure what to do with the Jews, but Haman knew what to do with the Jews. Get rid of them. They don't belong here. They don't fit in here. They're not real Persians. You need to get rid of them. And one reason why Haman hated the Jews so much was because of Mordecai. See, Mordecai refused to bow down to Haman. Remember what I said, Haman's an egomaniac, and Haman makes sure that everybody bows down to him. When he walked down a hallway, when he walked down a street, everybody in the kingdom was supposed to bow down to Haman. Everybody but the king, because Haman's second in command. Everybody did bow down to Haman because they were scared of him, besides Mordecai. That's why Mordecai's our ace. Because Mordecai is a follower of the one true God, and Mordecai refuses to bow down to anyone but God. And this infuriates Haman. He is ticked, and he wants to not only get rid of Mordecai, Haman wants to get rid of all the Jews. And so one day, he's walking down one of the hallways in the palace, and everybody else is bowing down to him, and Mordecai just stands there and looks at him like, I'm not bowing down to this guy. And Haman has enough, and so he goes to King Xerxes, and he says, okay, we got to do something about these Jews, O king. They're a problem. They don't fit in. We don't like them. Let's get rid of them. I want to slaughter all of them. Mass genocide. He was the Hitler before there was a Hitler. And King Xerxes, Cocoa, uh, Cuckoo for Cocoa Puffs, Xerxes, okay, Haman, whatever you want to do, go for it, do it. And so the order goes out. Esther 3 verse 13 says, Dispatches were sent by couriers to all the king's provinces with the order to destroy, kill, and annihilate all the Jews, young and old. Women and little children on a single day, and the day was set for a future date, the 13th day of the 12th month. So this order goes out. All the Jews on this certain day are to be slaughtered, killed, mass genocide. See, Mordecai, the guy who raised Esther, this faithful Jew, he works in the palace. He gets wind of this. He starts to mourn and grieve because he knows God's people, the Israelites, the Jews, they're in trouble. So Mordecai, he sends word to Esther, who's now become queen, and says, you've got to do something. You've got to do something to help your people. You've got to step in here. You've got influence with the king. You need to use that influence. And Esther, she hears Mordecai's message, but she responds to him and says, 
because in Mordecai, I don't think I can do that. I mean, I like to. I like to help out and everything. But you need to understand the law. The law says no one can approach the king unless they are officially invited by the king. No one can step into his presence, whether it's his court or his chambers or his bedroom. It doesn't matter. No one can come into his presence unless they are officially invited first. And the offense for coming into his presence without an invitation? Death. And here's the thing, Mordecai. Esther says, we've been married now for like five years. And the king hasn't asked for me in about 30 days, if you know what I'm saying. Now's not the best time for me to reveal my family heritage. Now's not the best time for me to ask the king for a favor. Cousin Mordecai, I would love to help. I really would. But now's not the right time. I just can't right now. Mordecai gets the message back from Esther. And listen to how he responds. We read on in Esther chapter 4, verse 12. When Esther's words were reported to Mordecai, he sent back this answer. Do not think that because you are in the king's house, you alone of all the Jews will escape. For if you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance for the Jews will arise from another place. Look at the faith here of Mordecai. He says, listen, God's made his people a promise. God's going to take care of his people one way or another. If you don't do what you can do right now, God's going to find another way. But you and your father's family will perish. And who knows but that you have come to royal position for such a time as this. I love the faith of Mordecai here. This is why Mordecai is our ace. Because he looks at Esther and he says, Esther, this is your moment. I know you're scared. I know this is outside of your comfort zone. I know you feel insecure and inadequate to do this. But Esther, this is your moment. Do you really think that you, this orphan Jewish girl happened, just happened to win this crazy beauty contest and pageant just by happenstance? Do you think that it was just a coincidence that you became queen of all of Persia? Mordecai says, God's in this, Esther. And I believe you are in this position, you are in this place right now for such a time as this. You weren't created just to enjoy the luxuries of the palace. You were created for a greater purpose. And now you need to see the opportunity that God is giving you to live out that greater purpose. Now, Esther, if you don't do what you could do, well, God's going to find another way to save his people. God's going to rescue his people. Mordecai knew that God had made a promise to Abraham that through the Jewish people that the Messiah would come and all peoples would be blessed. And God's going to fulfill that promise some way or another. If Esther didn't step up to the plate at this point, God would find another way. But Mordecai reminds Esther, maybe you're here, maybe you're in this spot, maybe you're in this place, this position for just this very moment. I like the language that Mordecai uses for such a time as this. And I don't know about you, but I want to live uh, for such a time as this kind of life. I want to live a life where I am always looking for the opportunities that God has given me to carry out His will, 
to live out a greater purpose than I could live out on my own. I want to live up for such a life as this type of life. And I think, honestly, all of us need a Mordecai in our lives. We all need someone who's going to help us see God's plan for our lives when our vision gets a little blurry. We all need someone who's going to wake us up and remind us of the opportunities that God is putting before us. Help us see those opportunities when we can't see them. We all need a Mordecai in our lives who are going to help us see God's vision for life when Satan is trying to blur our vision. And I believe what Mordecai is telling Esther in this passage is exactly what God wants you to hear today, right now in your living room, wherever you're worshiping from. I think this is the message that God wants all of us to hear. Don't ever underestimate or undersell where God has placed you. Because no matter where you are right now, God can use that situation. God can use the place you're in. God can use where you are right now to do something greater than you could ever imagine if you will simply say yes to the role that he is giving you in his story. So, if you're a parent right now and you're struggling, your spouse right now and your marriage isn't what it should be, Maybe you're a boss or employer, and right now with all this COVID-19 thing, you don't know what the future looks like for your business. Maybe you're wondering about what your kids are going to do for school. Maybe you're wondering what your next step is. Maybe you're dealing with some temptation. Maybe there's some stress or pressure that's on your life. Wherever you are right now, maybe you're here. Maybe you're in that moment for such a time as this. Maybe God can use it to do greater good. That's what Mordecai is trying to tell Esther. And when Esther receives his words, she has a change of heart. Look at what she says. Then Esther sent this reply to Mordecai. Go gather together all the Jews who are in Susa and fast for me. Do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my maids will fast as you do. When this is done, I will go to the king, even though it is against the law. And if I perish, I perish. See, Esther here in this moment realizes that God's plan, God's will is more important than her own comforts, her own safety, her own life. She's willing to put her very life on the line in order to do what's right in God's eyes. Side note here, look at what Esther asked the people to do, God's people to do. She wants all of them to pray for her. Never, never overlook the importance of having people pray for you. Guys, every single Sunday when I preach, I know that there are friends of mine who are praying for me, people in this church, people outside of this church. I have one minister friend who texts me every single Sunday morning, and I text him, and we let each other know that we're praying for one another as we serve God together. Guys, never underestimate, never overlook the power of people praying for you, because here's the thing, courage is always a choice. And the way that you find courage in the midst of a curveball, in the midst of a terrible situation, in the midst of dark times, is by focusing on God, by focusing on Him. That's what Esther does. She prays, she fasts, she asks everyone else to pray and fast for her. And let me summarize what happens. Esther decides to go and appear before her husband, the king, even though it's against the law for her to approach him without an invitation. 
She walks into the room where, she, where he is, and she's wearing her royal robe. She gets all dressed up for him. And with each step she takes, she's wondering if that step might be her last. Because the king's security, his guards, his secret service, they're ready to pounce on somebody that comes into his presence, even if it's the queen. And with each step she takes, she's wondering, could this be her very last? And right before the secret service gets ready to attack her, to pounce on her, King Xerxes looks up and notices his wife in the distance, all dressed up in her royal robes, and he says, stop. What is it, my queen? What is it that you want? He can tell something's up. She's all dressed up for a reason. What's up? What do you want? And King Xerxes says, I'll give you up to half my kingdom. What's going on? What do you need from me right now? See, Xerxes loves Esther. And Esther says, I don't want to tell you right now what I need. I don't want to tell you right now what I want. Can we have dinner tonight together. See, Esther knows that the quickest way to a man's heart is through his stomach. And so she says, let's have dinner tonight. And would you invite Haman, your prime minister, your right-hand man, second in command of all the kingdom, would you invite him to come too? And King Xerxes is like, okay, if that's what you want, sure. So they have dinner that night, and the three of them meet together, Esther, Xerxes, and Haman. And that night, the king says, okay, my queen, what is it that you want? What is it that I can help you with? And Esther's like, you know, I still, I'm not ready to tell you. Can we have dinner again tomorrow night and invite Hammond to come back again? And the king's like, okay, if that's what you want. Now, Hammond, by this point, he's on cloud nine because he gets to have dinner twice now with the king and queen. He thinks he is in, and so he's already Instagramming, you know, this dinner, and he's looking forward to the next night. He thinks he's in. He's on top of the world. And as he walks out of that first dinner meeting with Esther and King Xerxes, he walks down one of the hallways of the palace, and there he sees, guess who, Mordecai, the ace, Mordecai. A faithful Jew won't bat down anybody. And once again, Mordecai just stares Haman down as Haman walks by. And Haman has enough. He loses it because now he's in with the king and queen. And still, Mordecai won't bow down to him. So you know what Haman does? He goes home and he starts to build gallows in order to hang Mordecai. He's going to kill Mordecai the next day. In fact, when he has his morning meeting with the king the very next day, he's going to say, first time on our agenda, we got to kill. we got to get rid of Mordecai. But while Haman is building his gallows. The king, Xerxes, he can't sleep that night. So he calls in one of his servants and he says, would you read to me some of the history of my kingdom? I mean, he's bored. You know, he wants to be bored so he can fall asleep. And so he finds some boring reading, basically, and says, read this to me. Some of you guys probably do that. When you can't sleep at night, you get on your phone or you turn on a boring TV program or whatever, or maybe even you listen to an old sermon of mine online. I don't know, but you listen to something boring so you can fall asleep. And that's what King Xerxes does. He says, read for me some of the history of my kingdom. And it just so happens that the servant that night reads a section about Mordecai, who Haman wants to kill, and about this time when Mordecai saved the king's life. And the king says, do we ever do anything to honor Mordecai for that? I forgot he tried to save my life. Do we ever do anything to honor him? And the servant says, I don't think so, O king. So the next morning when Haman walks in, ready to say, hey, we need to get rid of Mordecai. We need to hang him. We need to kill him before he can get his words out. The king says, what should we do for a guy who uh, needs to be honored in our kingdom? And Haman thinks that the king is asking about himself, about Haman. And Haman says, well, I think we need to throw a parade in the streets for him. So the king says, do that for Mordecai. 
Now, that's not the message that Haman wanted to hear. Haman wanted to leave that day with the king saying, go kill Mordecai. Instead, he leaves with the message, you need to go throw a parade and a celebration for Mordecai. It's kind of like this story that I heard. It's a true story in, in New Zealand. There was this couple that got married, and on their wedding cake, they wanted for the baker to put this verse of Scripture. They wanted on the cake for it to say, 1 John 4.18, there is no fear in love, but perfect love drives out fear. Beautiful verse, perfect for a wedding cake right but instead the baker misread it and put down John 4:18, which says the fact is you have had five husbands and the man you now have is not your husband that's not the message they wanted on their wedding cake you know that backfired on them well Haman this isn't the message he wanted to leave with this is the message he wanted here but that's what happens and can you imagine Haman parading Mordecai through the streets saying oh hell Mordecai when he hates Mordecai I mean you can't make this stuff up this is great Haman's having a bad day but that night, he still has a dinner reservation with the king and queen. So he goes to this dinner reservation thinking, well, maybe everything isn't lost. And he's sitting there with the king and queen, and the king asks Esther again, okay, my wife, all right, my queen, what is it that you want? And listen to what Esther says. Esther says, then Queen Esther answered, if I have found favor with you, O king, and if it pleases your majesty, grant me my life this is my petition, and spare my people, this is my request, for I and my people have been sold for destruction and slaughter and annihilation. Basically, she says, hey, save my life because all my people are going to die, and the king is furious, and he says, who gave that order? Who wants to kill you? Who wants to kill my wife and her people? Who did it? And look at what happens. It says, King Xerxes asked Queen Esther, who is he? Where's the man who has dared to do such a thing? And Esther said, the adversary and enemy is the vile Haman. Dun, dun, dun. I love this. And the king looks across the table at Haman, and Haman is terrified, and the king gets in such a rage that he leaves the table, he leaves the room, not sure what to do, and Haman knows that his only chance, his only chance of surviving is if he begs for his life, if Esther will intercede for him. And so he goes over to Esther to try to beg for his life, and on the way over, he trips Literally, he trips on his way over. Probably he trips on a Persian rug. And he trips and he falls on top of Queen Esther. And right as he's landing on top of Queen Esther, King Xerxes walks back in the room. And if you move on to the next slide, King Xerxes walks in and says, Will he even molest the queen while she is with me in the house? As soon as the word left the king's mouth, they, meaning the servants of the king, covered Haman's face. In other words, Haman is a goner now. So the king is going to get rid of Haman. He's furious. He's mad. He's going to get rid of Haman. And one of the servants standing by says, uh, Oh, king, uh, I walked by Haman's house this morning, and he was building, you know, some gallows to hang Mordecai. And, uh, well, uh, you know, they're not being used because you're not going to kill Mordecai now. He's now a national hero. And the king says, Well, how convenient. All right, let's put a Haman on his own gallows. Let's hang him there. And sure enough, that's what happens. And so Haman is killed and is no more. And what's cool is not only are the people of Israel saved, God's people are rescued and saved. But what ends up happening is all of Haman's wealth goes to Esther. The king gives it to Esther. And Mordecai ends up becoming the prime minister of Persia ends up taking Haman's 
place. Now, if you're looking at this from a purely secular perspective, from secular history, what looks like what happened is that an ace challenged a queen to confront her king, and therefore the Jewish people were saved. But the upper story, the higher story, is that God's people were saved because in the midst of all this chaos, the king of kings had a plan. The king of kings was at work. See, you may not know this, but in the entire book of Esther, God's name is never mentioned, not once. Some people find that weird, they don't like that, but I think it's on purpose that God's name isn't mentioned. Because even though his name isn't mentioned, his fingerprints are all over the story. And it just reminds us that even when you can't see God at work, doesn't mean he's not at work. Even when you can't see him like you want to see him, doesn't mean he's not working behind the scenes for our good. His eyes are always on us. And no matter where you are right now, God created you for such a time as this. Right now, he wants to use you to play a role in his great story. This is your moment. Don't miss it. Don't look past it. Don't overlook it. Right now, whatever situation you're in, God can open a door for you to do great things for his will, for his mission. You are here for such a time as this. Because God has an incredible role for you to play in his story. I don't know about you, but I want to live a such a time as this kind of life. Or no matter what situation I find myself in, I'm looking for an opportunity to do what God wants me to do. So, when you get to the point in life when you're throwing a curveball and it looks like that the deck is stacked against you, let God play his hand because the king of kings always knows how to win. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you for today and this chance we've had to open up your word and look at the story of Esther. It's a fun story to read, it's an exciting drama, but it's a true story and it reminds us that God, you are always active even when we don't see it. So Father, may we realize that we are here for such a time as this and may you open up opportunities, continue to open up opportunities for us to carry out your will, your greater purpose. Because even when it looks like the deck is stacked against us, you still have a hand to play. We need to let you win the day for us. In the name of Jesus, I pray, amen.